Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And, Jim, we're pretty fired up about all of these today. But let's start with the good martini. This one's coming to us from the New York Post. And Bill de Blasio is still officially running for president. No one's really sure why he ever got in. No one's sure why he's still there. And no one will probably pay much attention when he gets out. But uh, the New York Post has done some new polling, or is at least reporting on new polling, which shows just how much de Blasio's own people don't like him. Uh, New York Post. Presidential wannabe mayor Bill de Blasio has the dubious distinction of being the single most unpopular political figure in the entirety of New York State, a stunning new survey reveals. The statewide Siena College poll shows a paltry 26% of voters have a favorable view of de Blasio compared to a staggering 57% who don't. Another 17% are undecided. That's a negative rating of 31 points in a deeply blue state. By comparison, 35% of voters have a favorable view of Trump, while 62% have an unfavorable view, with the remaining 3% of respondents undecided. President Trump, therefore, has a negative rating of 27 points, 27%, four points better than de Blasio. So, Jim... He's less popular than AOC, whose numbers are actually on the rise. He's less popular than Gillibrand, his fellow New Yorker who's in the race here. Nobody wants Bill de Blasio as president. Most people don't even want him as mayor anymore. So uh, what do you make of the people seeing this correctly in New York State? It's one of the rare situations where you could probably use the term failed mayor in every description of Bill de Blasio. And you wouldn't get a large uh, objection outside of his personal staff and maybe some family members. Um, we've talked about this in the past. That, you know, look, the main center of our national media world is not actually Washington D.C. It's actually you know New York City, and you may notice that Bill De Blasio gets much tougher coverage than your average Democratic presidential candidate, or maybe even your average Democrat on the national scene. This is because the people who write about these kinds of people actually live where De Blasio governs, and they're not happy with it. Um, wide variety of reasons for it quality of lifestyle crimes, you know, public urination, things like that. Uh, homeless people in New York starting to creep up again. Continued complaints about the subways. And if you've been up in New York City, you understand this is the transportation artery you really can't do without. Millions of people depend upon it every day, and it just gets less reliable, more delays, all that kind of stuff. He talks about stuff. His priorities don't seem to be that of the average uh, New York City resident. He really thinks a great deal about eliminating meat from the school lunches for all public school kids on Mondays. Meatless Mondays in order to save the environment. First of all, I wonder if the kids actually like the, the meals to begin with. <laughs> but, you know, it's one of those things where like, he, that's a sacrifice he's willing to make. Or he's willing, to make, he's willing to make the kids make that sacrifice. So here we have a New York City mayor who hates skyscrapers, who hates meat, who has gone after the complaints, uh, or, or who's gone after the, the, the hot dog vendors on the street corners. And oh, by the way, he's a Boston Red Sox fan. He doesn't root for the Yankees or the Mets. Like, that's a really horrible setup if you want to be mayor of New York City. Uh, from what we've seen on the debates, he seems like the most 
Like, I suppose the upside is that he's kind of combative and makes things interesting. On the other hand, he generally just attacks people. And, you know, a lot of Democrats don't like that. Certainly the other candidates don't particularly like him. This is a guy who, you know, has found a way to alienate almost everybody in New York City, including progressives who would ordinarily agree with him on his policy stances. One other detail to add is that Morning Consult did their big poll across the country. They had a couple thousand people participate. This is a really good big sample survey. Four candidates had zero support. I don't know whether this means that they actually had no one mention their name as their first choice for the presidential election, or whether it was merely that uh, they just couldn't reach the, the threshold to, you know, the, to be rounded up to 1%. Bill de Blasio was one of those people coming in at zero, suggesting he is not long for this life, so to speak, in the, uh, in the presidential campaign. And uh, I don't think anybody's going to miss him. And so I think, you know, Bill de Blasio might be the, just the prototypical example of the kind of person you want to keep out of politics because they leave everything worse than when they got there. No, I think that's exactly right. And while he deserves the the negative ratings, he's been a terrible mayor, it's interesting to see that in this, such a polarized era, anyone who criticizes Trump is immediately popular with a fairly sizable percentage on the left. Not in the case of de Blasio. Uh, he pretty much has uh, very little support either nationwide or in his home state or even his home city. So uh, there's at least some bipartisanship. We can all agree that Bill de Blasio should not be president and he's not a very good mayor either. All right, Jim, let's move on to our bad martini now. And uh, as we saw in the poll numbers from New York, President Trump not very popular there. He's popular, at least on a limited basis, with a few dozen people in San Antonio, Texas. We shouldn't know that, but we do, thanks to Texas Congressman Joaquin Castro. Not Julian Castro. This is his twin brother, who's the congressman. So Joaquin Castro on Twitter on Monday night uh, sends out this tweet that says, Sad to see so many San Antonians as 2019 maximum donors to Donald Trump, the owner of Bill Miller Barbecue, owner of the Historic Pearl, realtor Phyllis Browning, etc. Their contributions are fueling a campaign of hate that labels Hispanic immigrants as invaders. And so he lists their names and where they work, which is classic doxing here, Jim. Fortunately, we've got Steve Scalise, who at least is firing back here, the um, Republican whip in the House, saying, quote, people should not be personally targeted for their political views, period. This isn't a game. It's dangerous, and lives are at stake. I know this firsthand. So what do you make of what Castro did and the response it's getting? Sure. I wrote a bit about this this morning. First observation is that nobody in Congress should be doing something that goes anywhere near doxing because i'm not telling you how i'm not telling you who i'm not telling i'm not encouraging this but if you're a member of congress it's not hard to figure out where you live it's not hard to figure out your family members it's not to figure out a whole bunch of personal information about you we live in an era where a lot of this information ends up on the internet sometimes through public records um, and it is very hard to prevent somebody who wants to come after you and do you harm from learning a lot of information about you. I don't want to freak people out, but just that is the nature of this uh, this world we live in. Now, the question of, is it doxing? I'm stunned by the number of people who make bad faith arguments who say, well, this information is in the uh, uh, it's in the FEC record, so this is public record, so this is fine. Or, oh, if you bothered by this, you're going to be shocked by what's in the, uh, uh, what's in the phone book. Well, here's the thing. We live in an era <laughs> where we know people are politically motivated violence. We know not just the you know, boycotts or something like that. We just saw earlier in the week people on the you know on the lawns of uh, Mitch McConnell and Elaine Chow. Um, Lord knows we've had you know Lord knows the number of people who have had issues with stalkers. Lord knows the people who have had hate mail, threatening messages, stuff like that. I've had about three or four of them in my life. The one advantage for people like you and me and anybody else who has any type of role in in discussing politics is well, 
people might send us hate mail. Our email is not hard to find, but they don't know our home addresses. They don't know, you know, our spouses. They don't know our children. Uh, if anyone's ever wondering why does Jim never mention the names of his kids on TV or, or on, you know, on this podcast or in his columns, this is why, you know, that there's just too many nut jobs out there who have, a, there's a possibility they try to harm you someday. Now, Julian, I'm sorry, not Julian. It's it's Joaquin. It's the twin. You know, maybe uh, maybe Joaquin Castro can blame it on an evil twin or something. <laughs> uh, that uh, Joaquin Castro did here. I mean, this was pretty. This is pretty straightforward. It was not just these are the maximum Trump donors in my district. It's they are supporting this. You know, the uh, the demonization of of Hispanic immigrants as invaders and stuff like that. You know, it's one thing if the stalker has to go into the phone book and figure out your address. It's one thing if they have to go and actually look up the property records to figure out where your home address is or something like that. In this case, Joaquin Castro is doing the work for you, right? I, I, I said a kind of tongue in cheek yesterday. Great, this is a job. You know, we were losing the individual initiative of private sector Americans these days. And now, now all of a sudden, even the government has to do this for us. I emphasize tongue in cheek because I don't want people to do that, but we are setting a precedent here. Uh, Eric Erickson of, of uh, Red State, who's had issues with being swatted, which is when somebody calls up the uh, 911 number, usually tries to mask their number, lists your address and says that there's been a shooting in an attempt to get police SWAT teams to respond to your address with their guns drawn and hope something terrible happens. Thankfully, that has not happened too much to my knowledge. In Eric's case, everything turned out okay. Uh, but he pointed out that, look, this you're going to see white nationalists start posting the donor information to Jewish politicians or Jewish don you know donors whose names sound Jewish and stuff like that. And remember, right now, it was the left. It was the Democrats and the folks who are all saying, hey, that's fine, Joaquin Castro, who said this is all public information, so it's not a big deal. And Erickson writes, they play with fire here because they hate the president, but they can't control the fire once it spreads. This is going to become a much more common thing in our politics, unless Joaquin Castro gets broadly denounced right here. And it's not going to happen. There's just too much uh, reflexive partisanship that people want to defend Joaquin Castro for doing what he did. They, they really do want to get these uh, uh, these donors. They feel like these donors have you know really deserved to be named and shamed and that there should be some sort of retribution against them because they've donated to a presidential candidate that uh, Joaquin Castro thinks is uh, a terrible guy. And uh, Greg, day by day, I don't know how we come back from this. I, uh, until uh, maybe, you know, maybe unless and until there is some sort of god-awful cataclysm, that something really terrible happens that gets everybody to back away and I don't know when that's going to come, Greg. And I kind of hope it doesn't come. But on the other hand, I just don't, uh, you know, we are we are sliding down a slope really fast these days. Jim, I saw it mentioned yesterday that uh, due to stupid moves like this by Congressman Castro and the intense partisanship that sometimes spills over in, into violence, we saw it with the uh, congressional ballgame shooter and potentially uh, with this uh, shooter in El Paso on Saturday, that while we love a transparent political process and we should know who's donating to whom, are we at a point now where it's potentially becoming too dangerous and should there be less transparency? It's an interesting question. I'm not sure less transparency is a good thing, but where do you come down? I saw something this morning that, that you know, one of those things really makes you stop and think. I can't remember the name. It was a guy I used to uh, correspond with fairly regularly. I follow him on Twitter where he pointed out the traditional argument of those of us on the right is that sunlight is the best disinfectant, right? And that uh, we don't really want it to, you know, we already have limits on how much you can donate to presidential campaigns and things like that. We already have limits on how much you can donate to you know, campaigns and candidates. Uh, but for general political activism, there's no limit on how much you can donate to you know, these, these various groups. And he asked, you know, has, has sunlight been the best disinfectant? Have we 
Uh, certainly, I've gotten money on a politics. I haven't gotten big money on a politics. Certainly, haven't lessened the power of the special interests. You know, everybody, everybody's definition of special special interests is the ones they don't like. Uh, the ones that they like are always just you know, good groups of Americans standing up for their rights. You you end up in a situation where it hasn't done anything, but now we've created this opportunity for bad actors, uh, people with malevolence in their hearts, people who want bad things to happen to take this public information and then try to get people doxxed, try to get people targeted, try to get people to, you know, try to get some sort of negative retribution against people uh, because they've donated to a campaign that they don't support. And it's, I, I'd hate to see uh, uh, disclosure going away. I'd hate to see people arguing that, oh, campaign donors should be kept secret because I don't think that helps or serves the American people, but abusing, you know, there's a certain, you know, we have our rights. The question is we also have our responsibilities. Doing what Joaquin Castro did yesterday is an abuse of that right. Doing what he did yesterday is not handling that information responsibly. And you know, when you don't behave responsibly, it makes it easier for those in power to attempt to take away your rights. Uh, and I guess I'll just leave it there. Jim, uh, over the decades, we've seen a lot of different presidential candidates, even some very viable ones and some who have won with... Uh, you know, siblings with, uh, let's just say, less than excellent judgment. Um, you know, you think back to, to Billy Carter and uh, folks Billy like... Billy Beer, yeah, so. Roger Clinton playing those, playing those concerts in North Korea. <laughs> That's right. So does this put uh, Julian Castro in the upper tier now that he's got kind of an oddball uh, member of the family, even though he's in Congress? Wait, which one's the oddball again? <laughs> That's right. Uh, but your, your serious point is obviously well taken there because uh, we're on our sitting potentially on a political powder keg right now. And the, the less incitement uh, we can have here, the better. As I wrote yesterday, it really feels like the country's on the edge of a precipice. I hope that corner post from last night looks silly and panicky and alarmist in a couple of weeks or months and we get through this period. And, and everybody. But man, we just had something really terrible happen in this country. And instead of everybody trying to calm everyone down, instead of everybody trying to like lessen the tension, like let's get, let's let's lower the level of anger, let's lessen the lower of the heated rhetoric, let's let's let let some air out of the balloon before it bursts. Man, everybody's just leaning forward as we as we're on that precipice. Well, let's move on to crazy. It's still gloomy, but it is crazy. MSNBC has been. Uh... Well, far left for a long time now. I mean, Keith Olbermann had a primetime show over a decade ago. Uh, and now pretty much the whole lineup, whether it's cast as news or commentary, is uh, died in the wool left. Uh, the 11th Hour is a show hosted by Brian Williams, that paragon of journalistic integrity. And uh, he, he has joined the likes of Mika Brzezinski and Nicole Wallace with some uh, interesting moments on his show this week. And this one didn't actually come out of his mouth, unlike the other two. But uh, the other night, uh, Brian Williams has on his show a guy named Frank Figluzzi. He's a former deputy director of the FBI. So this is a guy who uh, would seem to have some credibility on how to isolate, track, and, and confront people who are engaging in white supremacist ideology and other domestic terror threats, whether online or in the real world. So uh, Brian Williams has him on, and uh, Frank Figluzzi says you got to watch out for the little things, and he thinks that Donald Trump's decision to raise the American flag on August 8th is uh, somehow a victory for the neo-Nazis. Here's what he said. So it's the little things and language and messaging that matters. The president said that we will fly our flags at half mast until August 8th. That's 8-8. Eight, eight. 
Now, I'm not going to imply that he did this deliberately, but I am using it as an example of the ignorance of the adversary that's being demonstrated by the White House. The numbers 8-8 are very significant in neo-Nazi and white supremacy movement. Why? Because the letter H is the eighth letter of the alphabet. And to them, the numbers 8-8 together stand for Heil Hitler. So we're going to be raising the flag back up uh, at dusk on 8-8. No one's thinking about this. No one's, no one's giving him the advice or he's rejecting the advice. He's not going to say that he did it on purpose. Jim, uh, this is going pretty far afield. I assume the only solution here is to get rid of August 8th entirely and have an August 32nd. Yeah. Wait, can we do that? That'd be kind of neat. Um, also, wait, how many days are in August? 31. 31. Okay. All right. So I was thinking, that, okay, so I was thinking about uh, which month, but June's the one that is 30. Okay. Yes. Um, so here's the, first of all, remember a couple of, somewhere early in Trump's presidency, there were people who were posing in the White House, and they were given the okay sign. You know, when you put your, t- your finger and your point, your pointy finger and your thumb together. And the argument was, that, well, your three fingers that are up look like they're making a W and your your thumb and your forefinger look like they're making a P. And it's a secret signal that the W and the P are supposed to stand for white power. And so if you make the okay sign, it's a secret white supremacist signal to say, hey, we're part of the crowd. And there was the woman who was behind Kavanaugh during the hearings. And at one point she gestured. And so I was like, ah, oh, they're secretly white supremacists. The first question is like, so people have been doing the okay sign for, for decades, right? You know, going, I, think, you know, I think it was around one of the world wars, the, the phrase, uh, you know, all correct was the uh, uh, mis, you know, misspelled uh, form of that. Never had a white supremacist connotation. Never had any secret signal or something like that. People are using it, you're doing that hand gesture all the time, not to mean hey, white power, man, they're doing it to me. Yes, that's okay. You're doing okay, right? The other argument, you know, or the other thing, I remember watching, uh, um, there was a PBS special where they, uh, I think it was uh, one of their, the news reports, they were talking to a volunteer for Trump. And the woman had two tattoos on her hands. One was the number 88. The other was the Celtic cross, which is a circle with the cross inside of it. Uh, it looks kind of like a plus sign. It's not the traditional or, you know, more, more common uh, elevated cross. Everyone to characterize it. Now, maybe this person was, re- that, that is another symbol that has been adopted by uh, white supremacist groups, neo-Nazis or something like that. But, you know, even the Anti-Defamation League is quick to point out, not everybody who uses the Celtic cross is a white supremacist. And they tell people, don't run around accusing people who are using this old religious symbol uh, as that. You know, uh, a lot of white supremacists get into Norse mythology, which means that Thor and Mjolnir, it's not like Marvel Comics is trying to promote white supremacy, right? So there's this, all these symbols that the white supremacists come along and say, hey, that's ours now. And we have a response and we, we have a choice when they do something like that. We can either say, okay, it's yours. Uh, we're now not going to, we're now going to look on, look at each Celtic cross with suspicion. We're now going to look at everybody using the okay hand sign with suspicion. And we're going to look at the number 88 with suspicion. Now, Greg, I have an Altoon jersey. Altoon is <laughs> number 88 for the Jets. I'm not giving up that jersey. Number 88 is a perfectly good number right there between 87 and 89. And it's been doing its job for as long as we've had numbers. Since when the hell the neo-Nazis get to come along and say, no, no, that's our number now. Right? Now, that number is always going to have a certain sinister connotation. That's That number is – whenever somebody has a number 88 on their jersey – or uses a number 88 in any other context, you'll wonder, did they pick it out randomly? Now, some might say, Jim, 
do you get a little bit nervous when you get your change back and it's, you know, your change is $6 and 66 cents. Yes. Yes, I do. I put a little more extra money in the tip jar then. Um, yeah, I understand the symbolism of certain numbers and things like that. There are people who worry about number 13 and all that kind of stuff. But in this case, we have a choice about how we respond to this. And I, so again, you, if he's saying number eight, eight, two eights together is always going to have this kind of sinister connotation that the neo-Nazis and white supremacists have claimed it. What do we do about August 8th, right? Now, if this guy thinks, you know what, just in case, you know, it doesn't seem to be deliberate, but just to give a little extra middle finger to the white supremacist groups, let's, you know, let's raise the flags the day before, or let's keep them down at half mass for another day and keep it up August 9th. I have no problem with any of that, although I think it's a little bit silly. But in the process, you're saying we recognize that August 8th is a special day for the white supremacists. By the way, Greg, you're, you're a bright, well-read guy. Have you ever heard any August 8th being a significant day to neo-Nazis? No. Okay. I looked it up on Wikipedia. No, that's not a significant anniversary of any particular events uh, related to white supremacy or neo-Nazis or anything like that. No anniversaries of any attacks. No, you know, now here's the thing. In light of this and in light of the terrible events of this weekend, you get a little freaked out about the possibility of maybe somebody's going to try something tomorrow. Right? We, we don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know what any of these days hold. But uh, it really does seem to be a uh, bizarre, you know, connecting the dots one step too many to indicate that there's some sort of sinister implication to this White House decision. And in the process, we're going to give white supremacists the day August 8th. We will, you know, is a de facto recognition that this day is special to them and that we have to change our behavior because they have put a claim on this day. And... Uh, you know, at that point, we are deep and far around the bend, Greg. Yeah, absolutely. You can't be catering to them in that way and to uh, make the suggestion that the, the president is somehow complicit in their celebration of that day, if that's even a thing, is also going pretty far afield, I would say. So, as you mentioned, Jim, a bizarre day on a number of fronts, but at least we can all agree that Bill de Blasio is terrible. We've got that today. So, talk to you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And be sure to tune in again Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.